Uh, well, friends, uh, when my uh, children were Leah's age, my, my wife and I watched a lot of Bob the Builder. Uh, hands up if you've watched Bob the Builder before. Um, a lot of the parents. If you haven't, uh, you've really missed out. Uh, you've got to watch it. Uh, Bob the Builder is, well, a builder who has lots of friends like Muck the dump truck and Dizzy the cement mixer and his business partner, Wendy. And uh, together, uh, these friends like to fix things. Uh, in fact, the theme song for Bob the Builder goes, Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Bob the Builder, yes we can. Uh, sounds a bit like President Barack Obama. Uh, now, we are people who love to fix things, aren't we? Uh, these days you can go online and work out how to fix just about anything. Anyone can become a handyman or a handywoman and fix things around the house for the better. But uh, this morning I want to ask the much bigger question of how can the world be fixed? How can the world be fixed? I don't think I need to convince anyone here that there is something broken about our world. But it seems that no one can work out just how to fix the mess that we find ourselves in. Is that true? Now, I think it's fair to say that if you want to fix anything, you need to get to the source of what the problem is. And yet different people will say different things about what is really wrong with our world, what the source of the problem is. And so some might say that it is war and violence that is the real problem with our world. Others will say that it's greed and poverty. Uh, still others might say that the real problem is really with our governments and with our uh, education system, perhaps. And all these people will say that in order to fix the world, you just need to address these things and the world will improve. However, I wonder whether we have grown a little bit weary and cynical about these calls to change the world. I mean, we've seen peace talks come and go. We've seen efforts like the Make Poverty History campaign come and go. We've seen governments and uh, different governments and different educational models come and go. Uh, we see young people in bright shirts and koala outfits out there in, on the streets asking us to give money to their cause that will fix the world. And yet we have grown weary and cynical towards anyone claiming to fix it because I think we have seen rightly that these things are just band-aid solutions. They haven't actually fixed very much of the world that we live in. How will the world really be fixed? Well, uh, we're, we've been having a bit of an up-close and personal look at Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Matthew in the last few weeks. And uh, we're in a section of Matthew that stretches from chapter 8 to chapter 9 of Matthew. Uh, and one commentator titles this section, When Jesus Confronts the World. When Jesus Confronts the World. Uh, I think that's not a bad way to see these chapters, because as we read these parts of Matthew's Gospel, uh, what, we, what we see is what actually happens 
when Jesus comes to confront the real world that we live in. And so uh, in our passage this morning, you will notice that uh, we have three miracle stories, true stories. And uh, like all good preachers, Matthew likes to work in threes. And uh, here I want you to see, um, through these miracles, just what happens when Jesus comes and confronts the brokenness of this world, this world that is fractured and in deep need of fixing. Uh, And the first miracle that you see there is the well-known miracle of Jesus calming the sea. And uh, this shows us what happens when Jesus confronts the chaos of of the physical created order. Uh, We saw this miracle briefly last week, didn't we? Uh, Where in verse 23, um, you'll see that a few disciples of Jesus uh, follow him into a boat to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. However, uh, while the boat is out there at sea, uh, you, you get this great storm brewing so that the boat is tossed about like a rag doll on the waters. Uh, I mentioned last week that the word Matthew uses for the storm here is literally the word for earthquake. Uh, It tells you something about the violence of what was being experienced out there on the waters. Uh, Now, to understand what is going on here, I think we need to understand what the Bible teaches us about the physical world that we live in. Uh, If you remember... Uh, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, in the very first book of the Bible, it not only affected their relationship with God and with each other, but it actually affected the whole created order, the whole physical world. God not only judges Adam and Eve for their sin and rebellion, but he curses the ground such that we now live in a physical world that is groaning, and disorderly and chaotic. Uh, It's a broken world under the judgment of God. Um, You know, it's a bit like when you get a chip on the windscreen of your car. Uh, I recently had a little chip on the windscreen of my car, and uh, you know what happens. That that first chip hits and it cracks the glass, but then the the crack kind of uh, gets bigger and bigger, and other cracks start to form, until eventually the whole windscreen is covered in cracks. Uh, You see, because of Adam and Eve's sin, the first crack that they have made have made its way into every human heart and to every human relationship and even to the entire physical world that we live in. I think that's what we're meant to see in this picture of the storm. It's as though the seas are joining in the rebellion of humanity, trying to uh, get rid of uh, God who is in the boat. And it is a picture of the groaning and disorder and chaos of a world and the God's judgment. Now, uh, we're told here that while the storm is brewing, uh, Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He must have been very tired after his healing and teaching activity. Uh, But in great contrast, notice that his disciples, uh, some of whom you might remember are are hardened fishermen, are absolutely terrified about losing their lives. 
And so in verse 25, they wake Jesus up and notice what they, cry, what they say to him. They cry out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. But Jesus' response here is perhaps a little bit unexpected. For he responds to the fear of the disciples, notice, with a rebuke. He says in verse 26, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? He rebukes the disciples for having little faith. But what is this little faith? Well, it's not the absence of faith, is it? I mean, these disciples are not like the rest of the crowd in Matthew's Gospel. They are not unbelievers. They are the ones who trusted Jesus enough to get into the boat with him. They are genuine disciples of Jesus. Further, I don't think Jesus is talking here about a particular quantity of faith. Uh, you know, faith is not a thing that you can have lots of or few of. For faith is simply the attitude of trust. But what Jesus is talking about here, I think, is the quality of their faith. The disciples at this point have a quality of faith that is weak. It is a doubting sort of faith that struggles to believe that Jesus who is in the boat with them, is the one who can save them. Uh, friends, I wonder whether that describes our faith at times. Is your faith and my faith weak? Do you have doubts about whether Jesus really can save a sinner, a rebellious person like you and like me? Uh, is our faith a li uh, little or immature in that sense? Well, if that is you this morning, I just want you to see very clearly what Jesus does here. Uh, notice that Jesus answers his disciples' fears and their little faith. Um, in other words, Jesus doesn't just turn these disciples away uh, even though they have little faith. He doesn't reject them. But he doesn't condone their little faith either. He rebukes their little faith for he wants you and me to grow in faith. He wants disciples to be growing in faith. He wants us to trust him completely with our lives. And so, uh, if our faith is weak, will you hear the rebuke of Jesus this morning? He doesn't want you to stay in that state. He wants your faith to grow, to trust Jesus completely. But what Jesus does, does next is utterly extraordinary and shows that he is the one in whom our faith can rest. For in verse 26, he stands up and he rebukes the sea and the winds, and miraculously, you'll notice there that there is great calm. It's such an astonishing miracle that the disciples in the boat ask the question, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? I think it's striking that Matthew describes the disciples in verse 27 as men. 
He's been describing them as disciples uh, all this time, but he simply calls them men. For the point that he is making is that, in contrast, Jesus is not just a man like the disciples, but he is God himself come in the flesh. You cannot calm the seas, you cannot still the wind if you were not God. And so Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is God. He is the Lord who rules over all of creation. Well, the second miracle that you see there shows us what happens when Jesus confronts a world that is under the influence of Satan and the demonic. You'll see there in verse 28 that Jesus is now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory, and he comes across two demon-possessed men. Uh, It's unlikely that this was a case of what we might call mental illness, because the gospel writers seem to sort of recognize the difference between different types of illnesses. And you can see that in chapter 4, verse 24, for example. Uh, It may be that what we are seeing here has something to do with the spirits of the dead, or what we might call ghosts. Uh, Spiritual phenomena like this are real, according to the Bible. And you can see the connection with the dead here, because notice that these men appear out of the tombs. And yet, I think it's important to realize that such demonic spirits are ultimately linked to the work of Satan, who is described in other parts of the Bible as the prince of the demonic world. And it is these demonic spirits who have invaded the bodies of these men, these two men, and taken possession of them. Uh, Now, I'm well aware that for some of us, uh, we do not need any convincing that there is a demonic reality to this world. Uh, In fact, a few weeks ago, a a couple who were not followers of Jesus uh, came to me and uh, we spoke for a while and they were terrified because they were experiencing things in their house, strange things that they could only explain as demonic. Uh, Perhaps you can point to strange things that have happened in your life that you have no other explanation for. But uh, we also live in a world of atheistic materialism where the spiritual uh, world is denied. And so uh, for some of us, as we approach parts of the Bible like this, we might have questions in our minds uh, or we might approach passages like this with a sense of scepticism. However, the thing I want you to see here is not just the reality of the demonic realm, but its effects. Uh, in verse 28, we're told that the, demonic, uh, the demon-possessed men have become like animals. They are so fierce that people could not pass that way. For you see, the demonic always has the effect of distorting and damaging and destroying humanity in a way that is uh, dehumanizing. It makes people less human, if I can put it like that. And I want to suggest that in the West, although seeing people possessed by demons is not a common thing, 
Well, the influence of the, demon, uh, of the demonic world can be certainly seen, whether it's in the lust and sexual immorality of our world or the greed and materialism of our world. We are a world under the influence of Satan and the demonic, such that these things are not making us more human, more flourishing uh, as God intended us to be, but less human. We turn people into things and they distort and damage and destroy those who are made in God's image. Now, friends, uh, it's important in this passage to see the response of the demon-possessed men who are now confronted by Jesus. Uh, In verse 29, you can see there that they cry out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, there are two things I want you to notice here. Firstly, notice the irony. Uh, In the previous miracle, the disciples of Jesus uh, are trying to figure out who Jesus really is. Uh, Who who is this man who can calm uh, the wind and the seas, they are asking. But here, the disciples themselves know precisely who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is God's Messiah. He's God's king come into the world to save people from their sins and to rule over the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, notice that we're given a big clue as to how to understand this particular passage. Uh, Often, I think the big temptation for us in reading the Bible is to read ourselves into the passage too quickly. And so, um, for example, some people say that because you know, Jesus drives out demons, well, that means uh, that if I follow Jesus, then I'll also be able to drive out demons in Jesus' name. But notice that in this passage, there is a very important clue as to how to read this passage, and it is in the reference to time. Uh, The demons say to Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? And uh, here's the point that Matthew is making. Uh, The point that Matthew is making is that there will come a time when Jesus will destroy Satan and the demons such that they will no longer be able to oppress and distort and dehumanize people. It will be a time when Jesus' authority over Satan will be made clear and he will usher in the new creation. And yet that time is not yet, we are told. And here, Jesus has come, notice, before that time to give us a preview of what that time will look like. Uh, Near where I live, there's a a big apartment block being built at the moment. Uh, When it's finished, I think it it will look quite heavenly because uh, it overlooks the golf course. But uh, I've noticed that when they start building these sort of big apartments, the first thing they do is they build a a show apartment. Is that right? And uh, the idea is that you can go into this show apartment and you can preview the whole thing before the actual construction uh, has finished. Uh, I think that's the sort of thing that we, we see here. Jesus comes before the time to give us a preview that one day the Son of God will destroy Satan and the demonic 
and usher in this new creation. Uh, now you can see there that Jesus is the one with all authority uh, over Satan and the demonic because in verse 31, uh, he simply has to say the word go and he drives out the demons into a herd of pigs who then rush headlong uh, into the sea and drown. Uh, in Mark's gospel, we are told that there were about 2,000 pigs. Uh, can you imagine that? 2,000 pigs that kind of go over the, the edge and, and drown. But friends, did you notice that what is particularly sad in this narrative is how the city responds to Jesus' miracle? Uh, you know, the herdsmen, after seeing this, they rush off into the city uh, to tell people about what has happened to these demon-possessed men. And uh, perhaps they're also feeling the shock of losing all their livestock. But for the people in the city, you would think that they would rejoice that these men have been freed from the oppression of the demonic. Uh, you would think that uh, they would think how wonderful that God has transformed these men from being like animals to being in their right mind. And yet, what do they do? Well, in verse 34, they go out to meet Jesus. And rather than saying how wonderful he is, they beg him to leave their region. Perhaps they were afraid of Jesus affecting their hip pockets as well, like the herdsmen who lost their pigs. I wonder, friends, whether sometimes uh, we too can care more about pigs than about people. Uh, you know, at our church, we are planning a spring mission in the month of September. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we can uh, tell as many people as we can in this local area that Jesus is the one who can free us from the oppression of Satan and sin and who can give us the hope of healing from our brokenness? Wouldn't it be great if we can see people's lives being transformed in the way that your life and my life has been transformed. And yet, for some of us, I wonder whether we have already decided not to get involved, not, not just in September, but generally, because we care more about pigs than people. I don't know what those pigs are for you. Uh, it could be the extra money uh, you, know, you can make on the weekends. It could be any number of things, holidays, sports, children's activities, not necessarily bad things or evil things in and of themselves. But God's question to you and me this morning is, do you care more about pigs or do you care more about people? And how is that going to translate into your life and my life? Well, finally, uh, the third miracle that we see there um, sees Jesus confronting sickness. And uh, you can see there in, in chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus makes his way back uh, on the boat to his hometown of Capernaum. And some people bring to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, uh, if you remember, Jesus has already miraculously healed a paralyzed man in the centurion's servant. Uh, which we saw earlier in chapter 8. 
And so the expectation here, as the paralytic man is being brought to Jesus, is that Jesus will also heal this man. Uh, However, I want you to see, as we saw in the kids' talk this morning, that Jesus does something very unexpected. For rather than heal this man physically, you can see there in in the middle of chapter 9, verse 2, that it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, the friend's faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think that's astonishing for two reasons. Firstly, it's astonishing because uh, it is the faith of the friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus that prompts Jesus to forgive the man's sins. Now, I don't think this means that you can be forgiven and saved by Jesus without having a faith of your own. But it does suggest that our faith can have a powerful effect on the lives of others and lead them to salvation. And uh, I think this is such an appropriate passage to look at today, isn't it, in the context of Leah's baptism, because what we are praying is that Jackie and Alice and Will and Eva, and indeed for us as Leah's church, that our faith might be something that has a powerful influence on the life of Leah, such that when she is old enough to make her own decisions well, she will delight to put her faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, uh, although this man had a great need for physical healing, uh, what Jesus is saying here is that his greatest need was for his sins to be forgiven. It's an outrageous thing to say to a quadriplegic who has been brought to you for healing, isn't it? It's politically incorrect to say to anyone these days that your greatest need is for your sin and rebellion against God to be forgiven. But what Jesus is doing here is he is getting to the heart of what is really wrong with this broken world. Here is Jesus' diagnosis of why this world is broken. You want to know why the The physical created order is groaning and disorderly and chaotic. Well, it's because humanity has sinned and walked away from its creator. Uh, You want to know why we see so much distortion and damage and dehumanizing in our lives and in our society? Well, it's because you and I have sinned and rebelled against our creator. You want to know why we suffer sickness and eventually death? Well, Jesus says it's because of our sin. And so our greatest need, just like this man's greatest need, is for our sin to be forgiven. And here we see Jesus as the one who has so graciously come to meet our greatest need. He is the one who has come to forgive sin and rebellion. However, you can see there that for some, Jesus' words cause great offence. In verse 3, we are told that some of the scribes or legal experts of the time think to themselves that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Uh, You see, it's because they do not believe that Jesus is God that they think that by claiming to do only what God can do, 
that Jesus is actually demeaning God and committing the serious charge of blasphemy. But notice that Jesus is very godlike in what he does next. It says that he, he knows their thoughts and he calls them evil in verse 4. And in verse 5, he poses a question to the scribes where he asks, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Uh, now, friends, how do you think you would answer that particular question? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk to the paralytic man? Well, I think the key here is to see that Jesus is asking which is easier to say. Now, clearly, it's easier to say with our lips, your sins are forgiven, because how will you ever know whether someone's sins are actually forgiven? You see, because the forgiveness of sins is a spiritual reality, it's very hard to verify whether what Jesus is saying is true or not, isn't it? But to say, rise and walk to a paralytic man, well, that's another story, isn't it? For whether the paralyzed man is actually healed is something that can be verified by the people who are there. And so what Jesus seems to be doing here is he's saying, if I can do the harder thing, of raising this person uh, from his bed, then surely I can do the easier thing of forgiving this man his sins. The, ir the irony of this, of course, is that from Jesus' point of view, it's actually the other way around. For God himself to heal a paralyzed man is a cinch. For God who created us from the dust to raise a paralyzed man is an easy thing and yet to forgive sin will take him to Calvary uh, where he will be nailed hands and feet to a wooden cross. And so to prove that he is the son of man of Daniel 7, the one who is given all uh, the authority over God's kingdom, and particularly the authority to forgive sins, uh, Jesus commands the paralyzed man in verse 6 to rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And in verse 7, the man does exactly what Jesus commands. Uh, it's interesting that in verse 8, we are told that the crowds are afraid. Uh, I think if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, uh, it might use the word awe there. Uh, it's not actually the word awe, it's actually the word to fear. Uh, it's a frightening thing to stand before the one who has the authority to forgive your sin and my sin. Well, let me finish up. Uh, we began by asking this morning the question of how this broken world will be fixed. Uh, I think the Bible's answer is simply that it will not be fixed by us, but it will one day be fixed by Jesus. Uh, in the miracle of the calming of the sea, we see that Jesus is the one with all authority to calm the sea 
and to bring order out of the chaos and the brokenness of this physical world. Uh, in the miracle of the demon-possessed man, uh, we see that Jesus is God's king who has all authority to restore people from the damage of Satan and the demonic. In the miracle of the paralytic, we see that Jesus is God's king or the son of man who has been given all authority and especially the authority to forgive sin which lies at the heart of the problem of what is wrong with this world. And so do you recognise his authority? Uh, is his authority a reality in your life and in my life? Uh, what would it look like to recognise Jesus' authority in our lives and over this broken world? Well, this passage suggests that it will look rather like faith rather than fear. It will look like a concern for people rather than for pigs. And it will mean the joy of knowing Jesus as the one who forgives our sin so that we live in hope that he will one day return to fix the brokenness of our lives and of this entire world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning and we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the Lord of creation, that he is the Son of God who has come to redeem humanity, that he is the Son of Man who is given all authority in this world, especially to forgive sin. Now, Father, when we look at our world and even our, our own lives, we see such brokenness and disorder and chaos. But uh, we thank you that Jesus is the one who has come to put together what is broken, uh, to bring order out of disorder, and to bring peace out of chaos. And so we pray that you would help us to put our hope in him. Help us not to hope in band-aid solutions to the problems of this world, but help us to trust in the one whom you have sent. Now, Father, we thank you that Jesus correctly diagnoses the real problem with our world. And we thank you that he is the one who has come into this world ultimately to remake this world by dying on the cross and by forgiving our sin. And so we pray that um, you would forgive us for the times that we have not listened to your word, that you would forgive us by the blood of your son and help us to turn from our sin and follow him joyfully with our whole hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.